Mets fans, I want to take a quick break from talking baseball and let you know about the next top prospect in building a smart home. Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is that big time new star prospect. The Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is a smart lock, a 2K resolution camera, and a doorbell. It's three devices in one, triple the security. You know triples are rare in baseball, but not with Eufy. You can have everything in one device rather than install many pieces on your front door. It's not just for security, but also for convenience. Just the other night, I had tons of packages in the rain. Rather than fumble for my keys, I easily entered my home. This is big since I have four dogs who are impatiently waiting for me at the door. No more concerns about losing keys, and you could assign passwords to your family members. Worried about when your loved ones are getting home? Eufy allows you to see them coming back home via the integrated camera. Hey Mets fans, this is a home run. I had a competitive product before Eufy, and it's the difference between a one-dimensional hitter and a five-tool player. Eufy is that five-tool superstar. Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com to learn more. Already sold? Go to Amazon and get your Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Want to go to the store? Best Buy will have it starting around May 20th. Get complete control over your front door at ease with the Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Sunday, May the 16th, 2021. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media and get the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. Well, welcome into another edition of the Talking Mets podcast, and uh, have a fun guest for you today. Uh, for the first time on the show, beat reporter for the New York Post, Mike Puma, has a new book out, If These Walls Could Talk, stories from the New York Mets, dugout, locker room, and press box, and a great forward by Keith Hernandez and actor-comedian Hank Azaria, so... We'll get a chance to talk to Mike. There's some great stories in this book, and uh, I highly recommend it. And uh, we'll get to that in just a few minutes. But to start off, I have a confession for the audience because I'm always honest with you guys. I never want to pretend to be anything more than who I am. But over the last couple of days, I, I had to put the New York Knicks ahead of the Mets in terms of my viewing. Now, I watched the game on Friday. And I was watching the game. My intent on Saturday was to watch the Mets game, record the Nick game, and then watch the Nick game later on that night, staying away from the score. But after, what was it, the five-run, oh, what, fourth inning by uh, the Rays against Frank Lucchese. Frank Lucchese. Joey Lucchese. Frank Lucchese was a manager back in the day. Joey Lucchese. I, uh, I switched to the Knicks and I stayed there. And then today... And I'll give you the background. Why did I pick the Knicks over the Mets today? And why am I telling you this? Because I, I just think it's always important to kind of give the audience an idea of who they're listening to and, and us to, to continue to develop as intimate of a relationship as you can 
um, through these airwaves. But growing up, baseball was my first love. I started watching sports with the 1987 Mets. Probably got into baseball during the 86 late season run. Like most young kids, I was nine years old. A winning team that captures the city. I'm sure, there was a lot of kids in the ni- nine, ten years later that got cap- you know captivated by the Yankees and became Yankees fans. But I also, because of uh, my upbringing, you know, my dad was also a big uh, basketball fan. Growing up, watching the you know nineteen sixty nine Knicks, the seventy three Knicks, and those teams, I was. While I was becoming a baseball fan, I was also becoming a, a basketball fan and started rooting for the Knicks during the Rick Pitino years. I mean, look how far back that goes. Rick Pitino has had many, many jobs since then, and almost it's a whole other world for Rick Pitino now. But um, I uh, I became a Knicks fan. And truthfully, as the Mets faded to somewhat obscurity in the early 90s before the Bobby Valentine years, ironically, those years which grab me back to baseball and some of those years which we'll talk with Mike Puma in just a little bit which are highlighted in his new book I was really captivated and built a lot of my sports foundation on those 1990s Pat Riley Knicks I mean if you listen closely to this program and how I look at team building and evaluate teams there's a lot of the Riley Knicks 90s DNA into my analysis and you can do that even with baseball because uh, the psychology of a team, the work, all the things that Riley preached that I think to this day are, regardless of how sports in the world have changed, they apply to just about anything. Baseball, sports, any sport, business, what have you. And I know you have Islanders fans in the audience. Islanders with a big play, you know, big win today against the Penguins. So uh, baseball's kind of in that time in this town when the other teams are good you get a chance to kind of hide a little bit and get over your struggles, which is going to be important for the Mets, who had pretty much a rock-bottom weekend here in Tampa. So all all truth be told, I was much more into the Knicks game today. Very excited about them having a successful season and, and, and a real huge step after having a run over the last 20 years that not even the Mets with the Madoff situation can even say they were in the doldrums like the Knicks. To be able to, in just a short span, pretty much from when training camp opened a couple of weeks before Christmas to now be a total almost 180, be a home court advantage in the first round, really a team that no matter what happens, it's all icing on the cake, and finally having that foundation to potentially go out and now not instead of recruiting free agents to make them relevant, have the relevancy to go out and get guys to add to what seems to be a really great culture that has been built by Tom Thibodeau, Leon Rose, and some of the guys that were brought in over the last 12 months. Um, you know, it's really special, and, and 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 I wanted to really be all in on that today. So I didn't watch much of the Stroman performance, but I watched the highlights. I know that both Conforto and McNeil got hurt. That's the big story. But after the seven-game winning streak and all the feelings, and I, I included in this that the Mets were turning the corner especially after that great ninth inning win against the Orioles earlier in the week and then uh, essentially knocking uh, you know Harvey's block off the following uh, afternoon during the business person special. Um, it's very disappointing to come into Tampa, have a horrible loss on Friday, uh, see a complete pitching meltdown on Saturday, and now really um, you already have Brandon Nemo who has this peculiar injury and J.D. Davis who's maybe about a week or so away back on the shelf. But now you have McNeil and Conforto on the shelf, and it looks like, you know, there's some reports tonight that the Mets are, and they're going to have to make a 40-man roster move here. Uh, Janishwi uh, Fargus, I think that's how you pronounce his name, uh, Janishwi Fargus, uh, a career minor leaguer, uh, a guy that, uh, you know, looks to be, from his minor league numbers, uh, nothing really special. I mean, a guy who could play the outfield, not, doesn't have much pop, you know, strikes out a ton. This is truly a 4A guy. Who knows? Maybe you can capture some lightning in a bottle. There's also talk about bringing up uh, top prospect Khalil Lee, who they got from the Royals in the offseason, uh, a guy that was up for a couple of days earlier this week. I guess they sent them back down because you really want a prospect to play. You don't want him to do, you know, defensive replacement pinch running. So you really have hit rock bottom here where, you know, just a couple of years ago, if you remember, the Mets were in, around this time, a similar situation 
in May when they had the replacements when it was Aaron Altair and Rajay Davis and Carlos Gomez and you you know a Dini Hechevaria. Similarly, now the only difference is is that you have some really solid. And it hurt your bench now. Your bench is now been thinned out with Kevin Pillar and Jonathan VR, guys that have been starters on teams in the past, can come in and I think plug the gap a little bit. But you're starting to look a lot like that team in uh, during that May run where they actually won some ball games. So you're hoping that the Mets can do the same thing here. They're going to have to continue to rely on their starting pitching, which does not include DeGrom which does include now more opener games than you probably like. And the bullpen, which ironically, uh, I saw a stat uh, when I was flicking back and forth from the Knicks game. I saw a stat where the bullpen is like the worst in baseball on the road. So the Mets bullpen has not been great on the road. And you saw it again on Friday. Look, you lost that game on Friday. Uh, I know there was some criticism of Luis Rojas. I don't criticize him for throwing Peterson out there in the eighth. I think after the home run, especially after he had the first two pitches away, and it looked like he had lost the the groove that he was in. That was about as good as I've seen Peterson ever pitch. His location, especially on the inside corner, was tremendous up until the eighth inning. You probably should have had your, your relievers up already. You probably should have had that. Um, and he didn't, and that's unfortunate. And, and you, you put Trevor May in a position where things, you know, it was a tough situation. My biggest criticism of this team right now, other than the fact that they continue to not execute with runners on, something that you saw the Rays do. You know, the Rays, and they were kind of a team that annoyed me a little bit. You look up and down their lineup. I mean, similarly, this I mean, this Margot guy, anytime he plays the Mets, it's so obnoxious how he can only seem to hit the Mets. Below league average hitter, not really a good hitter at all, but he hits the Mets. But you look up and down their lineup, yeah, they have Austin Meadows and Joey Wendell seems to be a decent bat, and, and Zunino can pop the ball out of the ballpark, and Yandy Diaz and, and whatnot. But they have a lot of guys that are just, you know, you look at them and like, those stats don't look great. But they seem to do the little things. When the Mets were shifting, they're getting ground balls to shortstop that are doubles and little loop singles. And they don't try to do more than what they're capable of. And it's one of those teams, and I think Yankees fans would understand that because they play them 19 times a year, where uh, the sum the sum of the part, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. I, I know it's a cliche. So there's a lot of things the Mets could have learned from the Rays. First, they've built a tremendous bullpen with a bunch of no-names. Mets were able to grab one of those in Aaron Loop, who pitched for them last year. Uh, you go up and down the bullpen, you're like, even Hunter Strickland, who they just uh, traded, uh, Here's a guy that couldn't pitch, get anybody out with the Mets, and he's actually having a pretty good season. They were able to trade him the Rays uh, and get some value for him. So you could learn a lot looking at what was going on across the diamond where the Rays put on a clinic of, of how to win without really wowing anybody. But I think the Friday loss really set the tone for the weekend. And this was a the, and I know they went to, like I said, St. Louis and, and Philadelphia and had a decent road trip, but this was the first road trip that I was looking at to say, okay, this is a, a test road trip. Let's see. Can they build on the seven-game winning streak? Can they go down to Tampa, Atlanta, Miami, and and start to move towards that first threshold, which is 10 games above 500? And they took a huge step back this weekend by getting swept. So with the injuries, whatnot. Look, I'm going to continue to say, and I think our next guest uh, tweeted it out and said it best where Mike Puma had a tweet on Saturday that said, I think most Mets fans would have signed up for 18 and 15, which is now 18 and 16. If I told them before the season, Nimmo, Davis, DeGrom, Carrasco, Lugo would be on the IL. Ed McNeil and probably Conforto to that. As of Sunday night, I don't know what their status is, but more than likely they're not going to be with the team for about 10 days. And Lindor's hitting 195 on May 15th. That says it all. That says it all. Uh, the fact that this team has been able to cobble together and not be buried because all those things together would smell if you were coming out of spring training with that knowledge over the first six or seven weeks of the season. That smells like a disastrous start, a huge hole. Not all that unsimilar to the hole they put themselves in back in 2019. There's actually a lot of similarities to this team versus 2019, how they got off to that slow start and 
the offense was a problem for that team as well. Injuries was a problem for that team as well. The bullpen, of course, all year was a problem here. Not so much. So um, I I think it'll be very interesting. And, And what I'm looking for coming up this week is how do they respond to this? Do they allow this to spiral? They will not have, it sounds like, Jacob deGrom until they come back from the road trip. So they're going to have to rely on openers. They're going to have to rely on Stroman and Taiwan Walker as their staples of the rotation. They're going to have to ask Lindor to step up, Pete Alonso to step up. Uh, They're going to need those two guys in particular. They're going to be asking for contributions from some guys like Fargus and maybe Khalil Lee, who... We don't know what the heck they could give. They're going to ask Dominic Smith to step up and Kevin Pillar and Jonathan Villar. These are guys that look, you know, they need to start doing their part. And and, and hopefully they could go into Atlanta. Atlanta's had their own issues and, uh, and win a couple of games. They really need to first stop the losing streak. That's first step. And then get back on track and win a series. And then hopefully you, you stop the bleeding. And I thought a 5-4 and four road trip is what I was looking for to pass the test. That's very ambitious now after getting swept by the Rays. Um, but maybe you could go out there and you can, uh, you know, win the next two series. You finish at four and five. And with the injuries, you sign up for that now and come back home. You got the Rockies on the back half, an awful team. And maybe you can get healthy at home. So um, I'm not ready to sound the panic alarm. I definitely think there's some danger ahead. And some of this is historically bad luck with injuries. The Nimmo injury particularly bothers me because it looks like it's a weird injury. And sometimes weird injuries that seem to be minor and odd linger and become these big deals for whatever reason. And that's and, and that really is hard because Nimmo was doing such a great job of being a run creator at the top of the lineup. Anytime he plays, he's a run creator. It's getting him to be consistently on the field, which has proved elusive other than maybe one season of his career uh, to date. So it'll be interesting to see how that transpires. So... All right, anyway, Mike Puma, uh, first time Puma has been on the show. I know I've been critical at times about Mike on Twitter. He has a bit of a sense of humor on Twitter, and and sometimes I haven't particularly cared for all his humor uh, when it came to the team on Twitter. But he's going to be joining me in in just a couple of minutes. I had a chance to catch up with him, actually, before the game today. He was in the press box just about a half an hour before the game. We had a chance to chat about his uh, new book. A book that really is great. A lot of stories, if these walls could talk. Stories for the New York Mets dugout locker room and press box, Mike Puma. So let's take a quick break. When we return, Mike Puma, beat reporter for the New York Post, joining me about his new book. We'll be back with that and more right after this. Bobby Valentine was a polarizing figure during his time as Mets manager. Who better to give us a balanced view of how it was playing for him than Hall of Famer Mike Piazza? Charming guy. Sweetheart guy, obviously, when you meet him, he ingratiates you, you feel, and it's sincere. I mean, it's not fake. Uh, Smart as hell. One of the smartest baseball guys I've ever seen. Extremely well at evaluating talent. Uh, Now to swing over to the other side, huge ego. um, Kind of like, you know, one of these gamblers. I I play a little bit of Texas Hold'em poker, and you're playing with these guys at the table and you're trying to figure them out, you know, you're trying to figure out tells and whatnot. And it just seems like he was that guy that shoved in every hand, you know, and really liked to let it roll. I remember one game, I think we were playing Baltimore in an inner uh, league game playing in Baltimore, but he took away the DH and somehow did some kind of move to where basically took the DH away. You know, I remember all the media saying, Oh, he's, he liked getting criticized so he could shove it you know, where the sun doesn't shine to people. And I think that was good and bad. And and he used to play little tricks as far as just to mo- try to motivate me. Like I, I wrote about it in my book one day where he said, oh, you have off tomorrow. And then I came walking in and I was in a lineup. You know, I caught like a weekend. It was a day game after night game. And I thought I was going to be off. And then he had told the media before that, you know, he was kind of playing with my head a little bit. And I was furious. You know, I wanted to just basically knock him out. I kind of, you know, I grit my teeth. I got through it. I think we won the games. So I think the point is, I mean, you know, I remember Chris Wheeler from the Phillies used to, couldn't stand Bobby. I mean, and used to call him top step Bobby, you know, yep. so he would always be on the top step of the dugout, you know, kind of head in the stands, you know, like, hey, look at me, you know, and he had that little bit of a sort of a Hollywood mentality. I could play for anyone. I played hard. 
I, I didn't like always sometimes a little bit of the mental judo that he would he would do. But ultimately, as a player, if you play hard, you keep your nose down, and you don't really try to get inside his head, you, you, you can survive and you can thrive. Listen to this and more at www.talkingmetspodcast.com. We're back, and I'm joined by Mike Puma, beat reporter for the Mets for the New York Post. Great new book, If These Walls Could Talk, stories from the New York Mets, dugout, locker room, and press box. And Mike, welcome to the program. Here's the most impressive thing. You know, the two forwards, and I mean this because forwards usually are throwaways in books sometimes, but you got a comedian actor, Hank uh, Azaria from Brockmire, Ray Donovan. I loved him in that, and an animated series like The Simpsons, and Keith Hernandez, and they really were uh, interesting with Hank talking about his fandom and trying to become a Dodgers fan. And Keith just basically saying time to move on from 86. So uh, talk about that. I think that was pretty cool. Yeah, I, I kind of put a lot of thought into how I wanted to handle the forwards. And now, Hank, I, I, I didn't know, but he, he followed me on Twitter. We followed each other on Twitter. And I, I knew he was a, a, a big Mets fan and obviously a, a very funny guy. So. I reached out to him and he agreed to do it. And uh, he, he did a terrific job with it. I think he, he captures a lot of the emotions of Mets fans, the ups and downs of, uh, you know, what it's been like over the years. And uh, yeah, you, you mentioned about uh, him trying to become a Dodger fan at one point. And he talks about, you know, going through spring training and, uh, uh, you know, following everything that's going on with the team and who's injured and this and that. And it, it gets to opening day. He's living in LA at the time. That's why he was, he was trying to follow the Dodgers and it was, you know, pre-internet era. And he said, he gets to opening day and the first pitch of the season's thrown. And he's like, ah, I can't do this. <laughs> he's, I'm a mess fan. So Hank was great. And Keith, you know, Keith, obviously I've known for the past decade plus being around the team uh, every day. And uh, he, he brings a, a great perspective. And uh, yeah, I, I thought it was uh interesting what he said you know it's the the 86 Mets have had their day it's time it's time for this generation to get it done Mike Puma beat reporter for the Mets uh, new book if these walls could talk and they do talk because what I like Mike is that today and this is not a knock on other books you got great books about fandom and you've got tons of books ranking and and analytics and whatnot but growing up as a young fan I mean uh, a Bob Clappish and John Hopper's The Worst Team Money Can Buy and the, the stories and the storytelling uh, was kind of what I liked and what I grew up on. You know, Roger Angel, you know, books like that. Uh, you took the era from, you know, the Subway series all the way to today. And I think what fans could expect from this book is not just the timeline of what happened. We know that. But you added some anecdotes and stories that I think we didn't know about. Um, so I think in a way, I, I wonder if you were purposely trying to bring back some of the storytelling that I think we're losing a little bit in specifically journalism at times, but even in some of the books that have been coming out. Yeah. And you know, that's, that's kind of what I, I bring to it here is because I've been, I started covering baseball in the late nineties. So that's kind of where I pick it up is in the, the Valentine era in, in 1998, when I, uh, was first around the team and I, I, I approached the book from a beat reporter perspective, talking to uh, the people I covered, the players, the executives, uh, the managers. Um, so I, w- I went back when, when I decided I was going to do this project. I said, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go back and uh, look at specific events that I, I found interesting. And I'm going to I'm going to do fresh interviews with the people who were part of it. And so I, I did about three, three dozen new interviews for the book. And uh, a, a lot of. Uh, a lot of new stuff came out in the course of those conversations. When you start talking about walking into that clubhouse in the late nineties, that's a crazy time. I mean, Bobby V years. I mean, that's, you know, journalism gold with Bobby there, Steve Phillips and everything, but you point out how you walked in and and it was a tough spot for you. Bobby is basically telling the writers to take sides. The GM hates the, the manager, the writers, a good portion of them didn't like Bobby because of how he acted and he could come across somewhat obtuse let's say in a polite way and uh you know who knows how that you know bled into their coverage of 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 him what did you learn from that because it's so easy not to like your subject and be around them every day but you're trying to be fair but you got thrown into the cauldron pretty quickly that was what I took away just reading that that first chapter yeah you gotta you gotta walk you gotta walk that fine line because uh 
uh, and I mentioned there at one point, Valentine would ask, you know, new writers to sign the team. Are you, you know, whose side are you on? Mine or Steve Phillips? And, uh, it, you know, he, I, now I wasn't a beat reporter back then, so I didn't get, I didn't get hit with that kind of question, but I, I know people at the, at the time covering the, uh, coming out of the beat sometimes face that question. Um, and it was, it was an interest, you know, you, you think about back then and, uh, you know, the rift between the GM manager and, and that kind of circus, you wouldn't have that today because, uh, you know, the, the power dynamic is, has shifted so much where, uh, you know, the manager, the manager's almost always going to be the GM's guy and, uh, the, the role of manager has been reduced so much to be more of a collaborator, but back then, you know, we're talking about an era, you know, Tony La Russa, Bobby Cox, uh, Jim Leland, guys like that, where, you know, the manager, uh, the manager was the king and, uh, you don't have that anymore. No, not at all. And as I looked and was reading what, you know, how you described that era and when talking about Bobby and I thought Steve Phillips and, and he has been on his series XM show, pretty open and honest about what he could have done better, but he talked about that there. When you look at Bobby, the fact that he took a team specifically doing more with less and in those early, you know, before Piazza came, then he gets them to the cusp of a World Series and a championship against the Yankees when they're in a dominant era. And when you look at him versus other managers and maybe not just Mets managers, managers that you've covered since then, Mets are trying to expand their Hall of Fame, connect with their history. Is, is Bobby V, who may be a future mayor of Stanford, Connecticut, by the way, Mike, a Mets Hall of Fame candidate, you know, when you start to really look back? I think I think he's got to be considered. You, th- you think about uh, what he did with those teams. Uh, taking them to the postseason two straight years, obviously the Subway Series. Um, just, you know, just the colorful character he brought to the organization. Uh, I, I can see Valentine down the line being a, a Mets Hall of Famer, and I, I could also see him being <laughs> Mayor of Stanford, Connecticut in a few months, yeah. That's for sure. Great promo video. I got to tell you, Bobby knows how – one thing, Mike, you could tell, Bobby knows how to promote himself, and he did that in his video. Uh, coming out at uh, Mayor Stanford, that's for sure. Mike Puma of the New York Post, Mets beat reporter. Great book, If These Walls Could Talk. Bringing back a lot of storytelling from uh, basically two decades of Mets baseball, from what I call the golden era of modern New York baseball when the you know, interleague play started all the way to today. Another thing I found interesting, Mike, that you got out, and that's why I said it was great with the storytelling, was we talk about tanking and competing a lot. Uh, in today's game Justin Turner talked about to you those purgatory Mets teams 11 12 where they weren't competing we know the payroll situation we know they had shortcomings but he specifically talked about how if you look back mid-season they weren't in a horrible position to make a run maybe at a wild card but the team was so overt about them not wanting to compete not going out not even talking about getting big name players I'm talking about fringy uh, component players to get better and how it impacted them in the back half of those seasons. Now, you covered those teams. Make sure we think about how players and the human component and how, you know, that had an impact negatively on the team, and, and maybe things could have been a little bit different. Not saying they win a championship, but think about the opportunities lost for those players in the organization with just some little effort that could have been made. Yeah, and Turner talks about that, how frustrating it was, uh, namely that 2012 season, because, they got to the all-star break. Uh, they were hanging around in the division. They were only a few games, maybe three, four games out of first place. And, and uh, you know, as, as Turner put it, they had the, the worst bullpen in the league or one of the worst bullpens. And maybe if they go out and, and, and trade for a couple of relievers, uh, they're able to, to compete the rest of the way. And, and they were basically told, no, uh, you know, th- this is the team we've got. This is uh, the team we're going to keep running out there. And they come out of the all-star break and go one in 10 and you know they're effectively dead at that point and uh you know he as Turner puts it at that point they were kind of waiting for uh you know Matt Harvey to get there they were waiting for Zach Wheeler to get there they were just kind of in a a holding pattern waiting for some of the uh the bigger guns but uh you know that for for players on those teams that that was a little bit frustrating yeah and it's becoming more common Mike and I think I don't know if it's going to change but you know, to me, winning, you know, 83 games versus 75 
the, yes, it changed your draft position, but let's face it, Mike, you go back and you look at drafts from 11, 12, look at some of the players having impact. They're not always the top five picks. Makes you wonder if we can, as we get into a new CBA, you as someone who's, again, been covering the, the team for a long time, the entertainment aspect, and I think Sandy Alderson has said this to you guys at times, his first act and his second act, you got to start taking that into account while you do the analytically sound decisions. And uh, I know with baseball kind of being under pressure with the entertainment value, to me, competing and having fun teams, uh, that engages a fan base. Wouldn't you agree? Even young people, even if they're not championship teams, there's so many fun memories that you bring up in the two decades in this book that were not teams that did very much on the field in terms of wins and losses. Yeah, and that's the thing. You know, if you can if you can be competitive into August and September, think you know, think about how many times uh, Major League Baseball loses September once football starts up. If if you can have a, a fun team that's that's you know just hanging around a little bit, I, th- I think it makes a big difference. As you know, it, it lengthens the season. It, it uh, keeps the fans engaged. And yeah, you mentioned the next CBA. It's going to be interesting to see. Uh, uh, what they do here because it, it has been a point in recent years that players agents have brought up about uh you know uh not giving uh, teams incentive to tank absolutely uh, yeah a- absolutely mike puma new york post uh, the book is if these walls could talk great stories about the mets over the last 25 years or so H- here's my favorite chapter and I don't want to give too much away because I want people to write, read the book, but you sh- read it regardless of what you know it's coming. The no-hitter and how you were able to bring in all the different stakeholders with Johan Santana's no-hitter. And here's what I thought. First off, Mike Vaccaro's story about him running to the ballpark. As a fan that night, I wasn't expecting to see a no-hitter, so I kind of engaged in that game late, just like Mike running to the ballpark, talking to Bobby Ojeda and his no-hitter experience. And I was thinking about how the no-hitter now because of innings and – you know, maybe the desensitized nature of the front office might be a dinosaur and may not be as fun or as important. I hope it doesn't get to that, but I thought that chapter was pretty cool. And it must've been fun to write it. Yeah. And that was the first chapter of the book I actually wrote um, when I, when I sat down and, and actually started uh, putting the words on the page, just because, um, you know, I, I was fascinated talking to, you know, you mentioned Mike Vaccaro, Bob Ojeda, who was in the SNY studio that night. I, I caught up with Mike Baxter, who obviously made the uh, big catch. And I, I just had had kind of fun telling that story from a different perspective. You know, even talking to Keith Hernandez later on, uh, who mentions at the end of the no-hitter, he looks over and uh, Gary Cohen is uh, in tears as he, he calls the uh, last out of the no-hitter because, you know, Gary had been so emotionally attached to the franchise as a fan growing up and, uh, you know, Gary tells me in the book he, he didn't ever think he'd ever see a no-hitter. So I, I had uh, a great time writing that chapter. Um, and, yeah, as far as will we see another no-hitter now, I'd, I'd like to think if Jacob deGrom has a shot at it, they would leave him in the game and let him do it. But I don't know. Are, are we going to see somebody, you know, get a chance to throw 130 pitches in a no-hitter again? I don't, I don't know about that. No, absolutely. And I'll tell you the biggest understory – or maybe what I took away is here's Mike Baxter, a guy from uh, the New York City area, but Mike from what? Mike from Whitestone, they used to call him because he used to call him the WFAN. Mets fan growing up, makes the catch to preserve the no hitter. And based on what you talk about with that injury, that injury pretty much ended his career, uh, Mike. Uh, well, too many Mikes here as we talk. Mike Baxter, Poop, Mike Poon, Mike Silva, <laughs> too many Mikes. But it ended his career. Think about the understory. That's a Kevin Costner film. The guy ends the career. I don't want to laugh, uh, you know, because it's a serious thing, but yeah. it's something that I don't think a lot of people have talked about. And you brought that out to a certain degree when you wrote about the no hitter in this book. Yeah. And the thing was Baxter at that point was just starting to get some uh, decent playing time for the Mets. And he had a, he had a pretty good OPS. He was, you know, he was a lefty bat. He was, he was starting to produce a little bit. It was the, it was kind of the peak of his career there. Uh, you know, that, that previous two months of the, you know, because that was June 1st. So the first couple of months, that 2012 season was the peak of his career. He's, he's starting to play and then uh, he gets hurt making that catch. And he, he's never the same again. You know, he, he, he tried to come back. Uh, he was with the Cubs actually in 15, uh, uh, the year the, the Mets went to the world series and uh, just, just never got it back. And it, 
uh, you know, it, the, the thing about it is at least you, you go out and you, you're remembered for something big. And, you know, Mets fans will never forget Mike Baxter. Absolutely not. You go. And that's the whole thing about storytelling. Mike Baxter goes into the lore and that's why you have fun, you know, rooting for a team, covering a team and it's organic and it just comes out there. There's no data with, there's no reason to believe Mike Baxter was the right guy to be in the right position that night, but he was another thing I think that you brought to light was something that uh, has been talked about is the treatment of rookies and how rookies could make or break themselves by what they do in the clubhouse. And I remember the debate back then, especially as blogs were coming into the forefront back in the 07, 08, uh, you know, those years was last things millage. The fans love millage, the high five. They didn't understand why a guy would flare wasn't given a shot. Willie Randolph, you know, was always reported. Wasn't a big fan. We knew he had issues with his teammates, Billy Wagner, not a, you know, an old school guy, a guy that has a lot of opinions about the modern game came clean, just talked about what uh, he didn't like. Uh, Cliff Floyd talking about the frustrations about trying to mentor him and how he, you know, basically didn't get it. And I, I know I remember talking to Mickey Brantley back in the day about uh, lasting because he saw in the minor leagues and how lastings didn't have necessarily the mental makeup and, and capacity like Reyes and Wright to, to be a great player. He told me, I remember that very vividly uh, during an off season. Uh, you talk about lastings uh, in depth with Billy. And, and I find it interesting because it shows that these veterans aren't just hazing these guys. They do care and how important it is for rookies to not only not necessarily know their place, but really glean from that uh, opportunity and how it could hurt their careers long-term. Yeah. And he was, he was such a talent, you know, five tool guy. And the, the, the Met, uh, you know, the players tried with him. You know, Cliff Floyd talks about uh, having a talk with uh, Millage uh, on, a, on a bus ride to Philadelphia and saying, all right, listen, uh, you know, a couple of days from now, we, we got an afternoon game. Show up at the ballpark early. We're, we're going to put in an early workout and show everybody, uh, you know, show your teammates uh, that you care. And the, and, and, and the day of the prearranged uh, workout comes around and uh, Millage doesn't show up. And not only does he not show up, he shows up past the reporting time for the game for players. He shows up at noon for a one o'clock game and is uh, walking into the clubhouse, looking at the lineup card, see if his name is in there. And of course he had been uh, removed at that point for, for not showing up on time. And uh, you know, Cliff Floyd just says, this is a guy who just didn't get it, you know, and uh, it's too bad. You know, we, we never got to see that, uh, that, that raw talent really blossom. Mike, uh, as we wrap up here, you covering the team, you know, you've heard a lot, you've seen a lot on background, on record. So when you write this book, you don't know what to expect, what it's going to come out of it. Fans, of course, are going to learn. But did you learn anything about a story, an era, a component of something that you were covering that surprised you now looking back? post-mortem for lack of a better word and you're like wow I had no idea did you did you take something away different from doing this project I always like to ask those who write books that question because you you'd be surprised what people answer yeah no I don't I don't think I took too much away you know we 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 knew that uh you know what polarizing figures the will ponds were as far as uh and you know I I think the the one story in there that one of the ones I like uh that I I stumbled upon was uh uh, Bobby Valentine talking about the end of 2002, Fred Wilpon telling him, you know, we're going to bring you back as manager. And then uh, uh, without going out into too much detail about what happened, because I want to save it. But, you know, there's a, a coaches meeting that uh, Valentine let Jeff Wilpon sit in. And, and something happened in that coaches meeting that uh, rubbed Valentine the wrong way. And the, and Valentine is convinced he got fired because of what happened with Jeff Wilpon in that coaches meeting. So, uh you know, I, I think it, it it goes to show kind of how the organization was run. And, uh, but, you know, let's be honest, 2006, the, they, they built up the team. They, they went out and got those free agents and, and built up a pretty good team. They just couldn't get over the top in those three years from 06 to 08. And then, you know, Madoff happened. But uh, I, I don't know if there's anything I really learned, uh, you know, huge doing this. But, you know, you, you learn – obviously uh, new stories and, and, and things that happened, but I don't, I don't think it changed my perception of, of anything that uh, happened has happened with the Mets over the last uh, two decades plus. I think, and as we wrap up uh, one last thing before I let you go, I think you tweeted out very succinctly 
this current Mets team uh, as we get to the current team, where they're at, 18 and 15. You're joining me just, you know, a half an hour or so before the final game of the series in Tampa. 18 and 15, injuries to Nimmo and Davis, big components of their lineup. Uh, DeGrom's been hurt, specifically the last couple of weeks. No Carrasco, no Lugo, Syndergaard still out. Lindor hitting below the Mendoza line, yet they're above 500. A lot of red flags, Mike, but I think when you put it out like that, we forget the season's long. I think writing this book, you can see how long baseball seasons are and how many twists and turns happened as you were writing some of these stories. We're still so young into the season. So is it bad? That sounds to me like a glass half full look on this team, even though there's a lot of glass half empty ways that you can maybe look at the 2021 Mets. Yeah, I think, you know, I think you got to look at it. We're in the middle of May here and they have a lot of guys hurt now. There's, the thing is, the, the, the trap you got to avoid is saying, all right, you know, we're going to get all these guys back and everything's going to be peachy. Well, how many times in the past have we right. waited for all these guys to come back and they don't come back? Right. So, but I think you just have to kind of be, uh, uh, you know, kind of tempered right now and just say, okay, you know, some of these guys are going to come back and, uh, you know, they've, they've managed to, they've managed to hold it together here. So it, it, it's, it's not time to push the panic button for sure. Book, writing a book is a hard thing. It's a lot of work. You did a great job here. Is there another book in the in the uh, in the future for Mike Puma? Maybe the 2021 Mets season. Maybe something down the road. Uh, give me something before I let you go about uh, uh, the 20. You know what's next for you with the book world? Yeah, you know I had I've had fun with this project, and uh, you know I I never thought I'd do a book. So I'm I'm you know I'll never I never say never. I I can see myself doing one. Uh, down the line at some point again but as as i sit here right now there's, there's no plans for anything but uh I, I could see it happening again mike you've been very generous of your time i know you got a, a you know game to cover and whatnot be well great book uh i re- highly recommend to the fans great stories and let's catch up again my friend all righty all right thanks for having me on mike take care that's mike puma uh mike of the new york post mets beat reporter at ny post underscore mets is the Twitter handle. The book is, let's make sure we get the full title in there. If these walls could talk stories from the New York Mets, dugout locker room and press box. And of course, like I said, great forwards from Keith Hernandez and uh, Hank Azaria, a comedian, actor and whatnot. All right, let's take a quick break. Wrap up with final thoughts. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. We just try to take it one day at a time. Um, Like I said, it's it's going to be days where we feel great and we score a bunch of runs. It's going to be days where we feel bad. Um, I think it's just about constantly just getting after it every day. I think it's just constantly uh, just preparing every day and, and playing hard. And that's what everybody does every night. You know, no matter what their numbers are, we go out every day. We play hard. Um, you saw it tonight. You saw Jeff and you saw more. I mean, I mean, we play, we play really, really hard. So I think, uh, I think that's something that uh, you guys take for granted and take away. And I think that's something that should be appreciated a little bit more. Hey, Dom, uh, what were you thinking when Almora went down like that and, and you came into the game in the eighth? <laughs> what do you mean? What were I thinking? Um, obviously, I mean, what, scary, what was your reaction? It's, you're, you're scared. I mean, you see a guy crash into the wall like that. You just want to make sure he's okay. Um, <laughs> we're a team. We're a brotherhood. So to see somebody, you know, lay their you know, career on the line like that, it's, it's pretty awesome. It gives you uh, that just more respect and love for the guy. And, uh, I mean, that guy's a warrior. And uh, it makes you want to just play and grind for the for the guy next to you. So, um, obviously, we're happy that uh, he's feeling better, but it's a very scary moment. And uh, you don't want to see any of your guys uh, get hurt like that or go down at all. All right, we're back, and I was able to play for you the Dom Smith Zoom press conference coming in here, uh, which I promised and I teased on Twitter because, um, you know, I thought it was important because if you listen to the press conference, and I, as a media member, I am actually have access to MLB Press Box, which allows me to get all the Zooms, even if I don't watch them on SNY. And I thought it was important to play that, especially coming out of what I thought was a great segment with Puma as we got into different stories and interactions he had while writing his book, uh, you know, throughout two decades of Mets baseball. It really is still 
uh, an evolving relationship between the media and the players. And I think you heard Dom Smith first talk a little bit about what he feels are slights that the media gives the team by not really reporting some of the ground level things that they do consistently. I think to a certain degree, you're seeing some people do that. And, and I don't think you see all of them do that. I think they're still focused on a lot of uh, gossip and non sequitur stuff that has really nothing to do with the team or the sport or connecting the dots in an appropriate way. And then to really, let's face it, the reporter, and I won't even give them any publicity because they don't deserve it. That asked the question, and you can figure out who that is, where, uh, how do you feel about seeing Albert Amora slam his face to the wall and knock himself out? Well, Dom said the right thing. You know, how do you think I feel? You know, what kind of question is that? And, and you couple that with the obvious trolling of the Mets by from big-name members of the media all the way down to locals with headlines and whatnot of Jared Kelnick's debut, which has nothing to do... Look, Jared Kelnick, playing in Seattle, might as well be on the moon. He might as well be on the moon. So I, I, I think the advent of Zoom and the way that the reporters are you know, now being kind of put into this you know, little box where literally a little box like the Brady Bunch where they're only going to get access to certain guys is definitely hurting our experience with the team. I mean, look at the post game today. Nothing. We don't even know the status of a couple of key players on the Mets. In the old days, pre-COVID, you would at least have the manager come on and you might have gotten some nuggets to, to take away, uh, you got nothing. It was no coverage of the Mets after this game in Tampa. They hightailed out of there, and that was it. I think part of that is obviously the pandemic, but I think you're also seeing when you hear what Dom Smith had to say that they're really getting tired of the narrative being spun. Now, if you heard me ask Mike going into the interview, and it was the first chapter where he talks about coming into a uh, you know as a young reporter going into the Mets clubhouse. And basically, Bobby Valentine putting these reporters on the spot, asking them to choose sides between him and the GM. And then Mike saying, there are guys on that beat that cover the Mets that hated Bobby and were rooting for him to lose. And if you think for a minute that did impact their reporting on the team, come on. You guys are smart. You know that. And I just brought that up because I think to a certain degree you may see that today. I'm not saying Puma does that. I thought Puma, you know, clearly if you write a book, with two decades of experience like Puma has, and get access to guys like Billy Wagner and Mike Piazza and Justin Turner, Omar Minaya, whoever, and you're able to you know get some really good stories out of them. Some have been out there, you know. Some just provide some context to events in Mets history and make it a little bit more clear why things happen. For example, the Lastings Millage situation. They even go into detail about the Scott Casimir trade. A lot of stuff about Scott Kazmier that I think gives you reasons why maybe it wasn't as a foregone conclusion that a deal of, you know, dealing a player like Kazmier was as bad as you, you know, may have thought at the time. Maybe the return at that point was the problem, but be that as it may, I thought it was important to wrap up here and continue to remind you that it's important to go out there and make really educated opinions when you read content and you really have to read through the lines and you have to put the agendas as part of your uh, uh, decision-making. And that's why we, what we do here, we have to look through everything. And I, I think the media has generally been fair to this Mets team for the most part. I think the Kelnick stuff is absurd, but all right, that'll blow over eventually. I mean, what are you going to, every time Kelnick gets a home run or has a three hit game or gets a hit, you're going to bother the Mets fan. I mean, come on. It's you know that prospects get traded. Fernando Tatis Jr. gets got traded. You know nobody talks about that anymore. Guys get traded. You know, Trey Turner got traded. You don't hear that being said every time those guys have been successful. So, but I but I thought it was very interesting, and that's why I wanted to you know get it from Mike's mouth that here his first experience in a clubhouse was basically a beat that hated the manager, and Bobby brings stuff on his own because. You even heard in the, the the promo with Mike Piazza, who was on the show, talk about it. Bobby has a big ego. And, I mean, look, he's running for mayor of Stanford. I mean, you got to give him credit. There's a guy that thinks he could do pretty much anything you put your mind to. you got to give him tons of credit. So, um, I thought it was, in, you know, I promised to, to, to share that. I thought it was something interesting. It's It's a comment and a topic that we've talked about ad nauseum here. 
And on the way out, I thought that was something that, uh, you know, I at least wanted you to listen to and remind you that there's more to a team than just the wins and losses, just what you see on the field. There's a lot of stuff that goes on behind the scenes. I think you, by reading a book like what Mike Puma has put together, you can see errors in Mets history and what went into certain decisions and what happened. And it's not necessarily maybe the narrative that was spun. The Victor Zambrano chapter, perfect example of that. I've spoken hours with Rick Peterson in my life. Rick and I had, you know, he probably doesn't remember, but we had like a three-hour conversation about 10 years ago when I first started to talk to him when he was coming out with books and I'd interact with him with 3P Sports and all that other stuff. I had a chance to talk to Rick many times. Brilliant guy. One of the guys that, uh, in my opinion, molded some of my theories and ideas on pitching. And the whole, I could fix Zambrano in 10 minutes, not exactly how it, was portrayed. So remember that as we go forward, we try to be fair on this show. We try to parse through the BS. And I thought that that clip was important for you guys to hear and really make sure I made a comment on it. A little stale, a little old, probably would have meant more if I had come out with a, a short, you know, after the Orioles series, but be that as it may, that's where we are. And uh, away you go. Hey, I thought the Puma segment was great. I highly recommend this book. If these walls could talk, uh, stories from the New York Mets dugout locker room and press box. And I want to thank Mike Puma for joining me today. Hey, I want to thank you guys for tuning in. Of course, you can check me out all the time at the TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. And you get the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire if you want to interact with me. Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your week. We'll be back with another podcast next week. Till then, take care, everybody. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.